Hello and welcome to Euromoney at COP26. My name is Lucy Fitzgeorge-Parker. I'm the editor for Sustainable Finance at Euromoney magazine and I'm your host for this podcast in which I'll be bringing you news and views from the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. The conference starts today and by the time this goes out, the World Leaders Summit will be underway and I will be on the ground in Scotland. And hopefully by then, some of the logistics of this COP will be a bit clearer than they were a week before the start when this introductory episode was recorded. Obviously, all COPs come with a fair amount of uncertainty, but it's usually around whether policymakers will be able to hammer out a deal on various climate issues. This time, thanks to COVID, the uncertainty has been a lot more widespread. Until quite recently, there were doubts about whether the conference, which was originally scheduled for last November, would actually go ahead in physical form. Clearly, it is now going ahead, but a big reduction in capacity combined with COVID-related travel restrictions has meant that a lot of people who would normally have made the trip to Glasgow have stayed at home, and some of the biggest non-governmental events are taking place online. And even for those of us who are lucky enough to be in Glasgow, a lot of the arrangements have been extremely last minute, partly, again, because capacity restrictions meant a lot of organisations have struggled with the question of who to send and what they'll actually be able to do when they get there. At the same time, there has been a huge amount of hype around the conference, and there is a lot of hope that it will produce some much-needed progress on the Paris Agreement and other climate goals. Now, I'm a complete COP newbie. I've never been to a COP before. So to get an idea of what to expect in Glasgow and how this COP might compare with previous COPs, I spoke to climate finance expert and COP veteran Abid Karmali. Abid has been working in climate finance for nearly 30 years, starting with a stint at the UN Environment Programme in the 90s, and he is currently Managing Director in ESG Climate Advisory at Bank of America. Abid, it's great to have you with us. Many thanks for taking the time to do this podcast. So how many COPs have you been to? Well, if you can believe it, this will be my 23rd. Oh my um, goodness. (laughs) uh, So yeah, my first COP was uh, Kyoto in uh, 1997. Uh, I missed one with an Achilles strain a few days before, um, but of course in one year there was actually two COPs um, when there was a COP6 this, and so that's how I, I uh, get to the 23 number. That's amazing. So you are going to be in Glasgow, I assume? Yes, I'll be there for mostly the first week since that's when most of the private sector events are focused, but may end up stretching through the second week as well. So as I said, the build-up to this COP uh, does seem to have been quite unusual. This is my first COP, so I don't know what it's been like previously, but there's been a lot of hype around this. There also does seem to have been a lot of confusion in uh, around the organisation and um, the lack of clarity. I mean, how does this compare with previous COPs you've been to? Well, I think you know, this one is happening in unusual circumstances. So the pandemic has introduced some uncertainty in terms of numbers, you know, restrictions, ability for people to travel. That's just the reality of, of life we're living in. But there's another dimension to this COP which makes it different, and that, that is the role of the private sector. You know, some have described it as a little bit of Davos squeezed into the front, and you know, that's never really happened at a COP before. So you know, we're going to be learning as, as we go here. Uh, and then having the world leaders show up at the beginning, uh, presumably designed to give that political momentum to the negotiators, I think is, is also creating some, some interesting dynamics. Yes, because the world leaders, would you have previously been at the, at the end of the COP, is that right? You know, there's been a mixed approach. So actually, in 2009, I think it was, in the Copenhagen COP, they came quite late in the day. And I suppose the feedback was, well, they came too late in the day to try to salvage the deal. And so, you know, the images of 
leaders negotiating, I mean, literally the world leaders with pens in hand negotiating at you know, past midnight. And that didn't go down too well in retrospect. So I think Paris learned from that and had them uh, show up earlier in the stage. But this is the first time they'll, they'll really be here to provide momentum all the way at the very beginning. And obviously, they have some fairly big issues to discuss. There's been a lot of focus in the lead up to this COP on the climate action targets that countries were required to come up with this year under the Paris Agreement, known as the Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs. But of course, the other big issue is global carbon markets, which come under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which is the only part of the agreement that still hasn't been resolved. Abid, you were head of carbon markets at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, for seven years. So this is very much your area of expertise. There seems to be quite a bit of confusion about Article 6. Could you briefly explain for our listeners what it is and why it's important? Yeah, sure. And I think it's important to understand what Article 6 is and is not. So it's, it's not an attempt to introduce a price on carbon. You'll hear many different stakeholders talk about the importance of a price on carbon. Yes, of course, that's clear. And we do have many examples around the world, EU, South Korea, China, more recently at the national level. California, Quebec, etc. So that's good. But that's part of the bottom-up approach that Paris introduced. Um, you know, that will be part of every country's own domestic suite of policies and measures. Article 6 is an attempt to create new market mechanisms, which will be, if you like, part of the uh, relatively small top-down architecture. And the key point is that if there is a successful deal that brings Article 6 into focus, well, that will enable countries to then be more ambitious with their emission reductions because there would be an ability for reductions to be delivered at lower cost with investments coming from outside you know, one's national borders. And that was what we saw with the successful part of the Kyoto Protocol, that market mechanisms helped to, to attract private capital into all kinds of interesting uh, emission reduction project activity that delivered reductions and engaged a variety of new stakeholders in the process. And so would uh, sort of some form of agreement on Article 6 be top of your wish list for this COP? Yes, absolutely. I, you know, it's, it's something which has been causing some delay in investments, let's say. Uh, you know, many project developers want to have some clarity about how credits for Article 6 will be um, assigned. Uh, and of course, in the meantime, the voluntary market has been picking up. I and mean, this is the interesting phenomena that, you know, the, the voluntary market is getting as much airtime now as the compliance part of the carbon markets. Uh, and that's because, of course, many companies, I mean, you'll be aware more than 20% of the world's largest 2000 companies have set net zero targets. And so clearly, they see voluntary carbon as one of those tools uh, to help deliver uh, net zero. And having clarity then about Article 6's role and how that meshes with voluntary carbon is going to be key because once that's sorted, then of course, hopefully, we'll see even more uh, investment going into reduction opportunities. And do you think there is any chance that much of that will actually be sorted in the next couple of weeks? Well, you know, the supporting tailwinds are pretty good. I mean, it's the first time that the US, China and the EU all seem to be generally pushing for an ambitious deal. And of course, we've had, you know, interesting developments in the last, well, let's say 72 hours or so with India likely now to uh, be present in Glasgow through Modi committing to tougher targets to 2030. That's a big win. 
Japan, you know, surviving the change of, of, of government and clarity now about their net zero commitments. South Korea, the same. So, you know, these are all positive tailwinds. There are very few countries left now who haven't committed to a net zero by 2050 or shortly thereafter type commitment. And that's positive, I think, in terms of helping to deliver an overall deal. So what else are you hoping for from COP, either on the public sector or the private sector side? Yeah, and I'm glad you you mentioned the private sector side, because I think there is actually going to be a whole other suite of activities that are going to be much more relevant, probably to to those of us in the financial community. Um, Of course, if you think about COP and finance, there is a rather narrow definition of what climate finance means. And that is primarily finance flowing for either climate mitigation or adaptation from the north to the south. Now, you know, the famous $100 billion per year by 2020 deal that was struck several years ago still dogs the negotiations. But I think all of us are very much aware that the real negotiation is about alignment of the broader financial system and how trillions of dollars flow through the capital markets, you know, on a day-to-day basis and how those are allocated to low carbon or not. And so, yes, of course, there will be discussion in a government-to-government piece about a post-2025 climate finance deal. But I think the more interesting discussion is going to be probably on finance day itself, which is mm. you know, the 3rd of November, and where a whole series of events are taking place, including those through the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Bank of America is one of the banks that has been a founding member of the Net Zero Banking Alliance and the umbrella, GFANS as it's called. And GFANS will be convening a whole series of interesting discussions, sometimes bringing private and public finance officials together. And I think we'll see some very interesting announcements that day. Okay, fantastic. Are there any other key events during COP that our listeners should be looking out for that would be of interest for the financial sector? I mean, I notice, is it, is it the first time there's been a Nature Day at COP? Yes, I think that, I mean, that is one of the interesting developments. I, I actually can't remember whether there's been a Nature Day previously. I think there's been Forestry Days. Probably they haven't referred to it as Nature Day, but that reflects the uh, growing interlinkage between climate and nature. In fact, Bank of America is part of the Energy Transition Commission. And in that commission, work that was done to look at what it takes to close the gap to 2030, in other words, you know, the additional reductions that would be required were we to be sticking to a two-degree pathway, suggests that roughly six gigatons of additional reductions should come from nature-based solutions. So that's where nature and climate uh, intersect, and it's where climate and, you know, the forgotten sometimes twin of biodiversity uh, loss, you know, really interact with each other. Because if you can get win-win solutions, delivering emission reductions and contributing to reversing the loss of biodiversity, well, that's fantastic news. And what about on the technology side? Is there anything we should be looking out for there? Yeah, I think these new hybrid arrangements between governments and companies where there's essentially a target that's set and everyone figures out how to deliver that particular piece. I think that's quite interesting. So lots of activity going on to advance the phase-out dates of uh, internal combustion engines. So it's a mix of the OEM, you know, the auto manufacturers themselves, as well as governments who are setting these phase-out dates. So that's one area of activity. The second is the whole sphere around green hydrogen. So there is this magical number that everyone keeps talking about, which is $2 a kilogram for green hydrogen production. Because once you get hydrogen to that level, it suddenly 
is able to compete with fossil-derived hydrogen, which is the majority of what we have today. And hydrogen is going to be a critical fuel to help decarbonize so many hard-to-abate sectors. So there's expected to be a coalition announced, which will talk about all the various ways that that $2 per kilogram is going to come into view much sooner rather than later. Okay, fantastic. Well, unfortunately, I know we're running out of time, but just one more question before we wrap up. You've been to 23 COPs, which is, is a lot of COPs. What are your best and worst memories from those? I'm guessing COP3 in Kyoto was a high point. COP3 is probably one of the better memories because I was actually at the United Nations Environment Programme desk in the room on the last night when, as, as you probably know, the, the meetings ran on and on and on. And at various points, it, it looked as if it, was, it had broken down. And then miraculously at six in the morning the day after, you know, a deal was struck. I think just seeing that it reminds one of the art of what's possible. So when countries really, you know, work in a, in a collaborative way to try and come to an outcome. And, and of course, we saw the same in Paris. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be you know, in the room in Paris as well on, on that last day, you know, in 2015. But in contrast, I think the, the Copenhagen Accord that was agreed to, and I somewhere in the office, I still have a, a copy of it, you know, a handmarked version. I mean, it was quite remarkable to see just how everything fell apart in the negotiations that then followed that. And that was a good example of the opposite, which is, if you really want to shoot holes in anything, of course you can. And numerous countries then decided to do that. And so you had this ludicrous outcome, which was that the Copenhagen Accord was noted and not accepted, not rejected, just noted. I, I hope we don't have that in, in Glasgow. Well, that's fantastic. As I say, we are out of time there, but uh, Abby, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's great to have you with us and uh, really great to get your unique experience on this. Thank you. Thanks, Lucy. Well, that's it for today. I'll be back with more news and views from Glasgow in our next episode, so please keep a lookout for that. And in the meantime, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.